Hello, and welcome to the November 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, we got our first ruling in one of the four movement organization lawsuits brought to stop President Trump's ban on transgender troops. Can you tell us about what the federal district court judge in D.C. did on October 30th, Art? Okay, the federal district court judge, Judge Colleen Kolar-Cotelli, issued a preliminary injunction on October 30 in response to a pretrial motion by the plaintiffs and rejected uh, a claim by the defendants that she had no jurisdiction over the case. Uh, The preliminary injunction intends to preserve the status quo as of the June 30, 2016 memorandum issued by then-Secretary of Defense Ash Carter during the Obama administration, which had reversed the traditional Defense Department exclusion on uh, transgender troops. And and the exclusion had worked in two ways. One was by refusing to allow transgender people to enlist or to transfer from, for example, National Guard units to regular uh, Defense Department units. And also, if uh, they were discovered to be in the military, if someone came out as transgender, uh, they would be dismissed under regulations uh, that said that they were medically unfit. So this was reversed uh, on June 30, 2016, after extensive study, a RAND Corporation report, extensive surveys of troops, consultations with various interest groups, uh, and the conclusion of all those studies was there was no good reason to bar transgender people from service. The expenses involved in providing health care for them would not significantly increase the Defense Department's uh, medical budget, and uh, the time that they might be sidelined after gender reassignment surgery was brief and no more disruptive than uh, the recovery time that other troops have for various medical situations. Uh, So uh, the Obama administration concluded they should be allowed to serve. Uh, On July 26, uh, without any preliminaries, studies, or anything, uh, President Trump issued a series of tweets which cumulatively said that he was henceforth barring all transgender people from any service in the military whatsoever. Uh, he claimed in his tweet that he that this was after consulting with experts and his generals, but he didn't say who he consulted, and it subsequently came out he didn't consult anybody, basically. Uh, he informed the Secretary of Defense the night before, who happened to be on vacation at the time. Uh, so, you know, it was... It was really bizarre. So he issues this thing with no indication of how it's going to be implemented, when it's going to be implemented, what's going to happen. Uh, And the White House staff was uh, stymied when they were immediately asked for details by the press because they had not. He hadn't told them. And there was no plan, really. It was just a ban. And it turns out, in retrospect, it was to get votes from Tea Party Republican types in the House who were threatening uh, to vote against or withhold their votes from the defense appropriations bill if he didn't accomplish a ban on uh, the Defense Department paying for sex reassignment surgery. They had proposed an amendment to the appropriations bill, which was voted down narrowly in the House. Uh, and so they went to the president and they complained, and they said, we're not going to vote for the final bill unless you do something about this. 
And uh, to Trump, the easy, quick solution is ban all transgender people from the military so there won't be anyone who needs the surgery. Uh, Sounds logical, but of course, uh, this policy was not vetted by his uh, legal counsel. Uh, I don't think it was run by the Justice Department. Uh, There was no consideration given to all the collateral damage that would occur to people's lives as a result of this policy. Uh, So uh, there are lawsuits all over the country. Uh, As you mentioned, there are four lawsuits. Different LGBT legal and political movement organizations are involved. And, of course, in all of these cases, there are some transgender people as plaintiffs. Uh, And the case uh, in uh, the D.C. District Court was the first one to be filed. Uh, It was filed even before the Trump administration issued their August 25 memorandum, which fleshed out uh, some of the details. uh, That In fact, the ban was not to go into effect until sometime in March, most likely, that the Defense Department would be tasked with studying how to implement it and making recommendations to the president, that in the meantime... No one was to be discharged because of their gender identity. Uh, Defense Secretary Mattis had already extended the time when they would begin allowing uh, transgender people to enlist. It had supposed to go into effect on July 1st, but he moved it back to January 1st, 2018. So that remained more or less in effect, although uh, because no one was being allowed to enlist. But in this August, uh, August 25 memorandum, It indicated that uh, the ability of transgender people to enlist in the service was suspended indefinitely until such time as someone persuaded Trump that they should be allowed. Uh, He's, you know, he's he's the royal we here. He's 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 like he's the emperor or the king. He just does things by fiat. He doesn't go to Congress. He doesn't consult with experts. It's just whatever random thought flickers in his mind in response to whatever prompt he sees. usually on, uh, on right-wing cable news. Uh, so in this case, the judge really focused in on the way this policy was declared, among other things. Uh, Which is very good for us, for constitutional for law purposes. Right, and, and she made an important holding as part of her uh, decision on the preliminary injunction. She had to decide what the level of scrutiny would be uh, for the claim that this violated equal protection and violation of the Fifth Amendment. And there is no D.C. Circuit precedent on this or Supreme Court precedent specifically on the level of scrutiny of government policies that discriminate based on gender identity. So she applied the analysis, the uh, uh, various factors that courts have looked at, the Supreme Court has looked at in deciding whether strict or heightened scrutiny applies. And he said, she said gender identity clearly qualifies. Uh, she said... Uh, that as a class, transgender individuals have suffered and continue to suffer severe persecution and discrimination. And despite this discrimination, the court is aware of no argument or evidence suggesting that being transgender in any way limits one's ability to contribute to society. Uh, Therefore, heightened scrutiny applies, she said. And under heightened scrutiny, the challenge policy is presumed to be unconstitutional unless the government can justify it. And the problem here for the government was they had no justification other than just mere assertions, an assertion that the expenses were uh, too much, an assertion that it made our forces less ready, uh, that it affected lethality, the, the word of the day that has now been 
raised with respect to transgender people by the uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, and the fact that he announces the policy first, then a month later announces the details, but puts off the implementation, that sort of undermines the argument that there's some kind of crisis here that you've got to start kicking people out. Right. Uh, the, the, the idea that... Uh, that there's some kind of problem that it's endangering the readiness of our military. If you're going to delay implementing it for six months, uh, and there's not much credibility for that. Right. And the government attorneys opposing the uh, motion for preliminary injunction, they argued first that you didn't have any jurisdiction because no one was harmed yet. And it seems that an equal protection violation is a harm, even if it hasn't been implemented yet. Just the adoption of a discriminatory policy has been recognized in the past as a harm under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, so uh, she characterized uh, the Defense Department, the, uh, I guess in this case the Justice Department's argument as a red herring. She said clearly there is a standing to attack uh, the policy at least with respect to the areas of uh, retention and accession. So by restoring the uh, status quo, uh, she did note that she was incorporating reference to Secretary Mattis's June 30, 2017 directive delaying the accession until January 1st. So basically what the preliminary injunction does is pending the final disposition on the merits of this case, they may not discharge people for being transgender and they have to start letting transgender people enlist on January 1st. But the one issue that was sort of left up in the air is sex reassignment surgery, which was the trigger for this whole thing in the first place. Uh, she said, for one thing, that the count in the complaint that specifically went to uh, the memorandum's discussion of sex reassignment surgery, uh, that none of the individual plaintiffs in this case had standing to challenge that. Uh, she said none of them are seeking sex reassignment surgery during the time in question except one or two people who evidently experienced some delays as a result of this announcement, but that's all been resolved. So no one had a specific standing, and she further pointed out that the August 25 memorandum says that sex reassignment procedures will continue to be available until such time as the overall policy is implemented in sometime in February or March. Most likely the, the last date named in the memo was March 23rd, but it said by March 23rd. So we don't know exactly when. Right. Uh, so in the meantime, it seems sex reassignment surgery should be available. But if there is any doubt about that uh, and uh, new plaintiffs emerge or plaintiffs in the other cases, the other three pending cases, if someone has uh, pretty direct standing, perhaps that will be addressed uh, as uh, arguments about preliminary injunctions are argued in those cases. Uh, but meanwhile, in this case, uh, there was bipartisan opposition in Congress to this. Uh, Senator McCain, who chairs the Senate Armed Services Committee, came out against Trump's policy uh, argument. In the House, a bill has been introduced with bipartisan uh, sponsorship uh, to specifically authorize uh, allowing transgender people to enlist and to serve in the military. Uh, whether that will go anywhere uh, in the Republican Congress one never knows. Probably not. Maybe we can attach it to the tax cut. Yeah, attach it. Uh, yeah, like like the Obamacare repeal that uh, Trump wants to attach to the tax cut. Uh, you know, we're probably dating this podcast by referring to these things. There'll yes. be ancient history in a few weeks. But in the meantime, 
this is progress. Uh, this is one federal district judge. Uh, the district judge here, uh, Judge Colarcatelli, was appointed to the district court by Bill Clinton, but she was initially appointed as a trial judge for the District of Columbia by President Reagan. Under, I believe, there's a, a merit selection process in, in place there. So those appointees of uh, trial judges in D.C. are generally non-political. Uh, and uh, the, this is a judge who has a reputation of being pretty much down the middle, nonpartisan deals with uh, controversial issues on the merits. So uh, given given her statements in this case about the likelihood of success on the merits, unless the Trump administration can come up with some kind of drastic, credible evidence that contradicts all the studies that were done before uh, the Ash Carter memorandum, uh, he's not going to win this case. So and it might be that despite this atrocious policy and people having to, you know, live through it that are serving in the military, we might be getting some really good precedent on, you know, what sort of constitutional protection transgender people are entitled to. Right. Um, This could be the case that that marks a breakthrough. Uh, The Justice Department has uh, joined as an amicus supporter of the Kenosha, Wisconsin School District, which is contesting the uh, decision by the Seventh Circuit that transgender discrimination violates Title IX. And the Supreme Court has not yet indicated whether they'll grant cert on that. I mean, that could be the first real substantive transgender uh, discrimination case to go to the Supreme Court if if it's granted. Otherwise, one of these military cases may end up being that. There was some indication that the administration was going to try to appeal this preliminary injunction. Uh, And how it will fare in the D.C. Circuit, Nobody knows. Although the recent uh, abortion case in the D.C. Circuit, at least the, when it went on bonk, yeah. uh, was able to get a good result, a liberal result, I guess you would say, out of the on bonk D.C. Circuit. So depending on the panel, you might get a, a conservative panel. But I think the full D.C. Circuit is is pretty good these days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even if a three-judge panel uh, was uh, set to reverse the preliminary injunction, uh, I think the uh, the plaintiffs in this case would petition for on bank and would probably get it. Yep. All right. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a little more of what the administration has up its sleeve for transgender people. Uh, we'll talk about what Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been up to. We are back. Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued two memorandums in October to announce changes in Department of Justice policy that threaten LGBT rights. Can you tell us about them, Art? Yeah, this is a continuation of stuff that's been going on since last spring and that continues. Uh, One of Sessions' goals, apparently, in the Justice Department is to totally reverse all of the Obama administration positions with respect to LGBT rights. And the first sign of this, of course, was as the administration was taking office, the Supreme Court was preparing to hear all arguments in the Gavin Grimm case out of the Fourth Circuit, presenting the question whether gender identity discrimination is uh, forbidden as a form of sex discrimination under Title IX. And the Fourth Circuit had relied upon an Obama administration interpretation of existing regulations to reach that conclusion. so uh, one of the first things they did, I mean, within, within about a month of taking office, 
Uh, he collaborated with Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who was falsely touted in the press as being pro-gay personally. Uh, no sign of that in, in her uh, performance in the, on the job since then. She and, uh, and Sessions co-signed a letter to all the school districts in the country withdrawing the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX. And then they filed the motion with the Supreme Court saying, uh, now that we've withdrawn it, uh, the question of whether reliance on it was proper is moot. Send the case back to the Fourth Circuit. Uh, so the Supreme Court canceled the argument and sent the case back to the Fourth Circuit, vacating the Fourth Circuit's prior decision. Uh, and the Fourth Circuit then sent it back to the trial judge, and the trial judge granted a motion by the school district to declare the case moot because Gavin Grimm has graduated. And there's an appeal now to the Fourth Circuit on whether that mootness decision was correct because Gavin Grimm says, you know, as an alum, I want to go to the school and use the appropriate restroom. So that policy is still in place. So it's not moot. So at any rate, that was the first sign, you know, withdrawing the Obama administration's Title IX. And then over the summer, we had uh, the tweet from uh, President Trump and we also had a, an executive order that was issued by President Trump in May uh, instructing the attorney general uh, to uh, take a position of maximum protection for free exercise of religion. He, he was uh, told to put out some kind of formal document from the Justice Department construing the First Amendment free exercise clause and its impact on all the areas affected by federal jurisprudence. Uh, And so while Sessions got to work on that, uh, he also had to deal with with the issue, continuing issue of whether transgender discrimination is covered under the federal sex discrimination laws. Uh, And this was clearly uh, an issue that was bothering him. So he issued a memorandum on October 4th directed uh, to all U.S. attorneys and heads of any departments within the Justice Department, which was titled Revised Treatment of Transgender Employment Discrimination Claims under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what this did was to formally withdraw a Justice Department memorandum issued during the Obama administration by Attorney General Holder on December 15, 2014, in which the uh, Justice Department took a position in line with the EEOC, which had announced this position previously, that gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination that violates Title VII. And, of course, uh, the Justice Department had also issued uh, a letter in connection with the Gavin Grimm case taking the position that under Title IX, gender identity discrimination was sex discrimination. So now Sessions, having first withdrawn the Title IX decision is now withdrawing the Title VII memorandum, and in its place uh, puts what you could call as a somewhat plausible, strict constructionist sort of reading of the federal case law thus far. I mean, the bottom line of, of this October 4th memo is his saying that uh, – As a law enforcement agency, he wrote, the Department of Justice must interpret Title VII as written by Congress, and Title VII as written by Congress doesn't expressly refer to gender identity or sexual orientation for that matter. Uh, So uh, Session says we got to go by the book, we got to go by the literal meaning of the statute, 
uh, and even those court of appeals decisions, there are some court of appeals decisions out there uh, extending protection uh, under Title VII or Title IX. Uh, he emphasizes that uh, uh, transgender people are protected from discrimination because of sex. And he sort of elides the issue of whether the Price Waterhouse sex stereotyping precedent under Title VII means that all transgender people are protected or just transgender people who are overtly gender nonconforming in some way and what that would mean. Uh, but he well, says. Of course, you can't overrule a Supreme Court decision by a DOJ memo. Yeah, but, but, but the Supreme Court decision was not about a transgender person. What we have are we have Court of Appeals decisions now from about four or five different circuits extending protection to transgender people on the grounds that gender identity is at heart, uh, among other things, a failure to conform to stereotypes about gender. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to understand exactly where this leaves us, but it, it certainly does leave us in the position where the Justice Department has basically told the EEOC that your position is wrong, and to the extent that the Justice Department has anything to say about litigation, you know, if, if a case goes to the Supreme Court from the EEOC, it's the Solicitor General who would normally represent the United States who's part of the Justice Department. So where this leaves us, sort of up in the air. But then there was a second memorandum, and this one was in many ways perhaps the more serious one. This is the memorandum uh, titled Federal Law Protections for Religious Liberty, uh, in response to Trump's May 4th executive order, in which uh, Sessions lays out what he calls his 20 principles about religious liberty under federal law. And the first principle, he says, religious liberty is a fundamental right. It's in the First Amendment. It's a fundamental right. And so, he says, it should be of, quote, paramount importance. That is, it's not only a fundamental right, but it is primary which suggests, which implies that in the eyes of the Justice Department, all other conflicting rights, whether statutory or constitutional, must give way to the paramount right of free exercise of religion. And this is consistent uh, in a a sort of way with the position the Justice Department has now taken in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is being argued on December 5th, the uh, department asked to be allowed to argue during the oral argument, uh, even though this is a case between a private individual, uh, Jack Phillips, the proprietor of Masterpiece Cake Shop, appealing a decision, seeking review of a decision by the Colorado Court of Appeals, which upheld the Colorado Civil Rights Agency in finding that he had violated the public accommodations law and there was no First Amendment exception to complying. Uh, and, and sort of the odd thing is he bases his refusal to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple on his religious objections to marriage, but his counsel, Alliance Defending Freedom, came up with this cake artist theory that this is really about compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment. And in the amicus brief that the Justice Department filed with the Supreme Court in the case, they disavowed any argument. They said, we make no arguments about the free exercise issues here. We're, hot, we're entirely focused on the free speech issues. This is a compelled speech case. That a baker of wedding cakes speaks through his cakes. 
And by requiring him to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, you're requiring him to speak. This is bizarre. Cakes are to be eaten. Yes, to be admired when they're wheeled out and they're cut and then they're eaten and they're gone. And I, uh, this, this idea of a cake There artist. was a great, uh, I know I'm forgetting who it was, but there was a great uh, amicus brief by some uh, First Amendment experts, scholars, who were saying, you know, we... We have a great, robust tradition of uh, political protest and expression in this country, but people do not do that through cakes. Well, not, but hasn't how, someone hasn't someone once protested by throwing a custard pie into someone's face, a politician's Anita face? Anita Bryant, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so, but you know, the the interesting thing is, there's an amicus brief on file in Masterpiece Cake Shop by a group of famous chefs all of whom disclaim the very idea that they express this, uh, themselves in terms of speech through the food they prepare. Uh, and and the, one of the arguments that's sometimes made is, well, you know, there's an inscription on a wedding cake, and that's speech. But Jack Phillips didn't even get to that point with these guys. They sat down with him in his cake shop to discuss the cake, and he said, who is it for? And they said, it's for us. And he said, I don't do same-sex marriages. I... It's against my religion. And so the conversation went no further. It's entirely possible they wanted a cake without any words on it right. or with no words that he could possibly object to. Uh, in the event, another raker made them a rainbow cake for their wedding celebration. But getting back to sessions, I mean, this, uh, this 20 principles thing is a piece of work. It's like giving the broadest possible interpretation to the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act it's saying that free exercise of religion includes the right to refuse to do something that violates your religion, to abstain. And, and clearly here he's focusing on uh, government officials, for example, who don't want anything to do with same-sex marriage uh, or uh, even people who uh, might make a claim under federal law of discrimination because someone uh, forced them be complicit in a same-sex marriage or something like that. And he, he adopts the, the broadest possible uh, that free exercise of religion trumps anything else. And I use the word trumps advisedly because the president's executive order told him to do this. Uh, so we'll see. I'm sure that there are going to be lots of cases in which the position of the Justice Department is challenged uh, in a particular issue if they're relying on this uh, memorandum for an unduly broad uh, construction of the free exercise clause. All right. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a great decision from the 11th Circuit ordering a new trial after a district court failed to ask jurors about anti gay biases. We are back. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit ruled that a district court abused its discretion by refusing to ask potential jurors if they were prejudiced against gay people. Can you tell us why, Art? Yeah, this is uh, an, an interesting sort of case. Uh, the uh, plaintiff in this case is Raymond Berthiom, who uh, was arrested by police officers who thought he was involved in a domestic dispute with his former partner. Uh, he and his former partner and his current partner and another friend had gone out uh, in Key West to attend the Fantasy Fest Parade, for which Berthiome was dressed in, well, there's some dispute, 
as to whether he was uh, wearing boxer shorts or a loincloth and flip-flops and nothing else. But at any rate, he, he and his, his ex and his current boyfriend and the other friend went out to a bar after going to this fantasy fest, and uh, they were ready to leave, but the former boyfriend wasn't. Uh, but they couldn't leave without him because they were his ride, and uh, eventually uh, Berthiom got impatient, and he went and he dragged him out of the bar. And uh, the ex grabbed the car keys out of his hands and went running away. And Berthiom set off in, in pursuit, although there's uh, a conflict of testimony about whether he was running or walking fast. And that's when the police officers saw them and thought that there was some kind of problem there uh, that they should uh, break up. So the police, led by Lieutenant Smith, uh, ran after Berthiom and shoved him. He fell, and he sustained serious injuries that required surgery. And uh, at that point, the ex, uh, Mr. Jimenez, stopped running and thanked Lieutenant Smith for bailing him out, but said he didn't want to press charges. But Lieutenant Smith arrested Berthiom anyway because he said the policy in Florida is when there's a domestic thing to arrest the aggressor to keep them apart for some period of time. So he arrested him. But, of course, there was no prosecution. Uh, so Berthiom then sues uh, Officer Smith and another police officer who was on the scene and uh, the city of Key West, and he claims that it was a wrongful arrest and excessive use of force, etc., etc. And the case is going to trial. And Berthiom's attorney says, well, you're to the judge, you're going to, of course, wardeer the jurors on any anti-gay bias because there's so many gay people are out to this case, and it's a gay person suing the police department. Obviously, we shouldn't have anyone with anti-gay bias on the jury. But the judge refused to pose the question. Uh, and uh, the uh, jury ruled for the defense, and Berthiom appeals. He says that it was an abuse of discretion for the judge not to question the jurors, and an 11th Circuit panel agreed. Uh, this is a per curiam opinion. We're not told who wrote it. Uh, there are three judges on the panel, of course. Two are Clinton appointees, and one is an Obama appointee. So it's most likely a pretty gay-friendly panel. But the main issue, the court said, was that it's really necessary to avoid letting juror bias against gay people affect the outcome, because that's not what this case is about, even though uh, obviously there are several gay people in the case, and there are going to be credibility issues about testimony and things of that sort. Uh, and they referred back to two precedents as being important here. One was a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1981. Uh, Rosales Lopez versus U.S., uh, a criminal case where the court held there were racial issues throughout this case. So it was important during voir dire to ensure that you had a jury of people who uh, you know, swore to the judge that they would not let race affect their uh, decision in the case, that the, the jury should be questioned about racial bias. Uh, and the 11th Circuit had relied on that case in a recent decision, United States versus Bates, uh, from 2014, involving a gay man who was charged with possession of child pornography. And uh, there was a motion by the defense to voir dire the jury on anti-gay bias because of the possibility that uh, the fact that he was a gay man was going to come out. Uh, because the prosecution, uh, in examining his uh, his computer, found evidence that he had used the Internet 
to uh, meet gay men for sex and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, the judge refused to uh, voir dire the jury on anti-gay bias, and uh, the prosecution uh, paraded the evidence of the defendant's homosexual activities before the jury, which convicted. And the 11th Circuit reversed in that case on the grounds that an anti-gay juror could really bias the jury and that it was appropriate to ask the question and an abuse of discretion not to. And so they said, similarly in this case, uh, it was clear that uh, Berthe homosexual orientation and that of his witnesses, said the court, became inextricably bound up with the issues to be resolved at trial. And therefore, it was necessary to ask that question. And failing to do so meant that the process had been tainted and Berthiaume was entitled to a new trial. This is great. And this sort of follows up on the Ninth Circuit ruling from a couple of years ago about uh, peremptory challenges for juries. Uh, right. We're starting to get some starting to get some in this area of the law. Yeah. Generally, the, the idea of gay people serving on juries and juries being questioned about anti-gay bias uh, they're different issues, but they're all of a piece right. in a sense that the jury process has to be fair to gay people, right. whether they're parties or potential jurors. All right, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a judge waiving New York's residency requirements so that a Polish gay couple could get a divorce. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. Although no longer a problem for Americans post-Obergefell, due to New York's statutory residency requirement for divorce, foreign same-sex couples who come or have already come to New York to marry and then return to a home jurisdiction that does not recognize same-sex marriages can face a dilemma if they later break up. This was the problem faced by Andre Gruszynski and Wichter Jerzy Torkowski, uh, Polish citizens who were married in New York City's clerk, the New York City clerk's Manhattan Marriage Bureau, on December 6, 2013, having traveled to New York specifically to get married, and then returned to their home in Warsaw. After a, a few years of marriage, they mutually decided that they did not want to remain married to one, one another, according to Justice Matthew F. Cooper in his decision. But because Poland does not recognize same-sex marriage in any form, the parties could not turn to their local courts to obtain a divorce. So how did Justice Cooper solve this dilemma, Art? Okay, well, these, these men had gotten legal advice that since they weren't going to be able to get a divorce in Poland, uh, they should file in New York, which is where they got married. So they sought to file papers for an uncontested divorce. No issues have to be decided by the court. Just grant the divorce. There's, there's no child custody issue. There's no property division issue. It's uncontested. But when they submitted the papers, the clerk refused to take them on the grounds that it did not include an allegation that at least one of the men was a New York resident for at least a year, which would be required under New York law. Uh, so uh, they filed a motion with Justice Cooper seeking equitable relief from the residency requirement. And Justice Cooper pointed out that after New York uh, legislated for marriage equality in 2011, the city of New York got to work promoting itself as a spot for same-sex marriage for tourists and advertised overseas. It was a big promotion. And in fact, uh, on the anniversary 
of that decision going into effect in uh, July 2012, the first anniversary, Mayor Bloomberg issued a statement that the city had realized an additional quarter billion dollars in revenue for uh, hotels and restaurants and theater and, and various tourist spots attributable to the number of people, same-sex couples, who came here from out of state and many of them from overseas just to get married in New York. Uh, so there's sort of a catch-22 here. New York lures them in, and then if they need to get a divorce, New York shuts its door. And Justice Cooper thought that was unfair, inequitable, uh, that these guys would be stuck. There's no way they can get a divorce in Poland. Poland is not interested in marriage, recognizing their marriage, so they're not going to give them a divorce. Uh, so he said it would be appropriate to waive that requirement in such a case. And furthermore, he noted, this is uncontested. That is, although it's technically it's filed by Grzynski against Tarkovsky, they agree that they want a divorce, and Tarkovsky is not raising any objection to the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, so he could say that any objection to the jurisdiction of the court has been waived. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is for unusual circumstances. Back before the Obergefell decision, there were many people in the United States who uh, were living in non-marriage equality states who went to New York or other places to get married and then had troubles if they wanted to get divorced in their home state. Uh, California decided to bail out people by saying you can get a divorce in the county where you married even though you don't live there. Uh, but uh, many states, the legislatures, had taken no action to deal with this issue. But after Obergefell, it's not really a, an issue in the U.S. because the same-sex marriage will be recognized everywhere. So people should have access to divorce. And there have not been any reports about refusals of courts to allow divorces uh, for people who are, were married in the U.S. Uh, in their, and then to get a divorce in their home state. Uh, but there were a fair number of, of foreign tourists so this uh, opens up a possibility for those who were new in, married in New York to come back to New York to get a divorce if they need one without having to establish residency for a year. Uh, this is, of course, just a trial court decision. It's going to be officially published, however, uh, so it will be a persuasive precedent. It won't be appealed by anybody, so we're not going to get an appellate ruling out of this. Uh, but it's important that Judge Justice Cooper did not just give a pro forma waiver, but had a long explanatory opinion that can be a persuasive precedent, perhaps even out of state. All right. Interesting stuff. But uh, I'm happy for, well, I guess I'm not happy that they're getting divorced and they're breaking Celebrate up. Celebrate your divorce. But I'm happy that they got a good, uh, just result, I guess. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le hyphen gal.org this and future excuse me future podcasts can also be found online in itunes or at legal.podbean.com please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast follow legal on twitter at lgbt bar ny or like us on facebook thanks again happy thanksgiving and we will see you in december <music>